Welcome back to the Not Just a Bikini Girl podcast. This is your host, Jasmine Anderson. Right, a bit of a backstory, guys. Uh, we tried to do this recording, and then someone, i.e. me, uh, kind of did a bit of a mess up, if I maybe say. Well, it actually wasn't my fault, but I, I'll take full responsibility for it. But yeah, we're here with the amazing Eugene Teo. So he is based out in Australia, and he's really, really great in terms of if you've got a problem, whether it's in bodybuilding or health or strength, anything to do with strength training, he is the go-to guy. So I thought, let's get this guy on. He knows his stuff, and I'm really, really excited to have another try at getting this recorded and getting this out to you guys. So welcome, Eugene, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for, for the warm welcome again. It's just good to be back again. <laughs> oh, so for people that don't know you, who is Eugene TA? Right. So like, I, I do get asked this in some shape or form over and over again, like whether it's even if it's outside of the podcast or interview kind of realm, people always say to me, like, where do, how did you get to do what you do? Like essentially, like I started out many, many years ago, nearly 10 years ago now as a personal trainer in the fitness industry, working with a lot of general populations, working with a lot of different people and work with myself, most importantly, going through as a bodybuilder. Like as much as I, I struggle to no longer identify as a bodybuilder from time to time, but I know that I'm no longer that bodybuilder, but many years ago in my teenage years, I was everything about what I did was bodybuilding. It was eat, sleep, train, skip social events, skip my birthday, skip Christmas, just to bodybuild and isolate myself. And like, I don't regret doing that at all. It was part of what made me, me, because I would go through many different preps and it would start to create some kind of, I guess, cognitive dissonance in my mind where I'd go through a prep. My first ever prep when I was like 18 years old, I wound up being on zero carbs for about 16 weeks out and doing three hours of cardio each day on top of training weights twice a day. So it's like, you know, we're looking at five, six hours of, yeah. of gym work a day on top of running a personal training business, on top of being a student. I've got no idea where I pulled time out of my ass. I do remember distinctly waking up. This is before 24-hour gyms are a big thing here in Australia. So I found one tiny studio nearby me that was 24 hours. Um, there weren't any time fitnesses or anything like that at that point in time. So this is just the one gym. I sourced it out. I got a membership just so I could go there at 3 a.m. and do my cardio and then come back home and go get like get ready for work or whatever, get back to work at like 5 a.m. at my gym that I was working at and rinse, repeat for 16 weeks. So how many hours, hang on, so how many hours of sleep did you get during that time? Oh, not much. It was maybe five or six hours at absolute most of stretching it, but more so towards like, probably more like three or four because I'd, I'd finish, I remember I'd finish my last cardio session around 9.30 p.m. because that's when the gym would shut that I was working at. Um, and then I'd head home, yeah. have a meal normally, and then go to bed maybe about 10, 11 o'clock. So we're looking at, you know, between four to five hours. Um, but some nights, obviously a little bit earlier, depends on what was happening on that day. But see, the big thing is people go through like that, that story is not unlike anybody else's. I'm sure many girls, many guys, many people have gone through that sort of stuff, or they've gone through similar um, shades of that. But I guess what, what made me who I am is I would look at that and say, there must be a better way or something's not fitting because then I would see other people and I was like, how can this guy start out as fat as I was and get as lean as I got or leaner and he didn't touch cardio and he didn't touch drugs either. Like, you know, not that I touched drugs back then either. It was just like, it was all natural, but it was like, how did, how did this guy achieve that result with zero cardio and three sessions a week with weights that were like an hour to two hours each at most. And he was eating all these carbs 
how does that doesn't make sense to me? Now, I'm not saying that what he's doing is correct because, again, that's one extreme and what I did was another extreme and there's something in between. But it just got my wheels turning and thinking there must be something different out there. And then, you know, through the course of many, many years, many, many experiences with different coaches, with my own body, with different clients, I'm working with them as well. I started to just always seek out better ways. That's what I'm continually doing now, trying to find better ways. You know, working with clients many years ago, I was that person who would get your typical stressed out and flamed clients and just slam them to the ground with a 45-minute hit kind of session and then realize, why the fuck are they not getting results? And I think I'd blame it on them saying, oh, look, you're, just, you're not focusing on your diet. You're not, it's because you're not supplementing with magnesium. That's why you're not getting results. I didn't think for a second it must be because of my poor training or my poor program design. But then um, I'd, uh, over time, over more learn, I think it must be a better way. And then I found that better way. As far as I know for the moment, anyway, I'm going to find a better way in another 10 years, I'm sure, of getting the results with people without having to necessarily destroy them. Because, I mean, you should be working hard at some points in the year, but for most people, it's not always about pushing yourself to that point. And, you know, that's what brings me to doing what I can do now with people as a, as a people helper, as a problem solver, somebody who gets any issue and says, okay, you have an injured lower back or you have an inability to build muscle or burn fat or you um, want to get on stage or you want to do a powerlifting mates what's your problem let me know what it is and i will then help you solve that and i'll help you with that goal so you just mentioned on injuries there mm-hmm. what are the biggest because i know you do coach quite a lot of bodybuilding clients through their preps and bits like that mm. what is kind of the biggest injury that you come across bodybuilding competitors or maybe female competitors in particular Okay, females specifically, without a doubt, it's going to be lower back. Like I've not met a single girl who has come to me and said, I've never had a lower back issue or doesn't have currently have lower back pain um, or something related to the hips. Like hip, lower back region, it's always going to happen. There may be one random anomaly. Like actually, no, I lie because last week I did a private event and the girl was like, I've never had lower back pain. And I said, okay. And in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, shit, you're 21 years old. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> and it may not Did be. Did she compete? No, not yet. <laughs> she just uh, ran. There you go. She competes. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait till she competes or we'll wait till she goes through some trauma. But, you know, we've got to also define what is specific lower back pain. Like when I, when I talk about injuries, people think, oh, I've never like done a disc. I've never had any nerve pain, never had any like actual debilitating injury. But say, do you get pain in your lower back during your menstrual cycle? And then they're like, oh, yeah, I do. And I say, do you think that's kind of related? Do you think that's kind of highlighting a, a deeper issue that may that may go unnoticed for the most part? But maybe that's I wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily class it as an injury, but it's definitely a red flag that I see time and time again um, with with women where it's that lower back and hip structure too much. Like it could be a, a tightness issue, it could be an overly lax issue as well with people. It depends. Um, but hips and lower back. Do you think it stems from bad training? Do you think it stems from, you know, the back pose itself? You have to do quite a lot of arching. Where do you think that problem could, yeah. could potentially be stemming from? So, I mean, locally, if we're looking at competitors, they actually, that's a very, very small amount of the percentage of the population. And definitely back posing, wearing wearing heels all the time or, or posing in general for a female competitor or just trying to look a certain way and strut around a certain way for Instagram with a Kardashian duck butt going on. That may promote more lower back issues with lordosis, but of course, that's not like bikini competitors or female fitness inspo models or whatever. These girls are actually not the norm. 
the norm is your general gen pop clients. And those girls aren't walking around strutting around the gym in heels with lordosis and duck butt. They just, but they have lower back pain. So I wouldn't, I would definitely say like focusing on wearing heels and the back poses, et cetera, et cetera, that can play into, um, for a lot of competitors, why they get lower back issues or hip issues or even upper trap neck issues as well. But for most girls as in general, I wouldn't say it's from the specifics of bikini training. It's, it's training in general. It is a lack of, I guess, balance or appropriate program design and exercise execution and training in general that's causing these issues. It's not taking all the, the right considerations into training the female body specifically because guys do get lower back issues. Guys do get um, hip issues. Um, but the more thing that I see with guys is something like a lot of excessive tightness or dominance in the hamstrings to make up the poor glute stability and then they end up tearing their hamstrings um, that's or, or getting overdevelopment on one side of their lats or their erectors. That's more specific to guys, whereas girls, it's always lower back, lower back, lower back, which tells me that there's something different about the human structure for females that isn't being considered with training. Okay. So what do you think that could potentially be in terms of, I don't know. What we're looking at there is like, the big question is how does training need to be different for females? males versus females so there's a lot that really needs to be considered so yeah. and that's one of the biggest mistakes people make from day one they think either on one extreme they they see females as little males and say oh if a guy can squat a girl can squat if a guy can bench press and deadlift a girl can deadlift but it's i mean that's really really like for one thing it's very very offensive it's very very politically incorrect you are not little i mean you're little you're you're, you're generally speaking smaller humans yeah um <laughs> We'll give that, but you're not little men. You're, you're a completely different organism, completely different structure that needs to be trained in a very, very different way. So there's that bias. And if you train a girl the way that you train a guy, you are going to snap because girls and guys are very different. But on the other extreme, there's another, I guess, mismatch there where coaches or the girls themselves, they think of training, especially in the bikini world, just as aesthetics. So we know aesthetically, we can agree that for a female competitor or females in general, they want to look a little bit differently than guys. You know, like they need to emphasize certain body parts. So like for you as a bikini competitor or bikini girls, what, what do bikini girls generally look for the most? What do they want to grow muscle-wise? Obviously the glutes. Yeah. It's like the easy one. Um, potentially shoulders. Mm-hmm. I'd say they want a small waist, but I think a lot of people don't realize in order to, you can't grow a small waist, if that makes sense. Like they have to, work on everything else around that to get the small waist but um, yeah yeah i'm actually you know it's probably it's probably for a future podcast or a future thing down the road but with waist training i'm very very big on not using waist training not using a squeam but there are very specific ways that you can actually change the the, the, the look and the dimensions and the size of somebody's waist um yeah, like not, not just saying, hey, you got wider lats, you got more of a V taper. It's like, no, you can actually structurally change, not the ribs, but you can change the waist. Because like, you know, touch below your rib cage, above your, ilia, above your yeah. hip bone, that's all tissue. That's all soft tissue. You can manipulate that. You can change that. And you can develop that a certain way mm. to make your waist look blockier and thicker or to make your waist smaller and more svelte. Um, it's just like any other muscle tissue. You can train it, but people don't. But that's a whole other um, side of it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, what do most girls care about? They care about glutes yeah. and shoulders. Like, you don't get guys coming to me saying, Eugene, I want you to grow my ass. 
It's just it's not what they it's not what they really say. Like there are a couple of guys who really assess about glute training, um, and that's okay. I mean, this is not like the Brett Contreras side. I think this is like actually like a guy trying to be a bikini model. Like I want to grow my ass. Like oh, okay, it's a weird goal, but whatever. Do do whatever you want. Well, hey. <laughs> I'm going to say, though, I honestly do think Joe has a better ass than me, like, hands up. <laughs> I see so many guys in the gym, I'm like, you've got a better ass, like, obviously not, like, weirdly, but I'm like, you've actually got a better ass than me right now. Like, I'm more, I have to look at Joe, I'm like, oh, my God. Look, it, yeah, I mean, if, if we're looking at it from a, like, a, uh, how do you say that, evolutionary or ancestral, um, anthropological side of the coin, guys actually do have a better predisposition to grow an ass. This is very, very broad strokes, but if you think about what what does what do the glutes primarily do? They like the glute med plays a stability role, the glute max plays a more power based role. Um, these kinds of roles are very much needed for guys um, as hunter gatherers, as hunters, as as fighters, as protectors of, of a tribe. Generally speaking, that's potentially why, like as a girl, you'd be like, Oh, that guy's got a really good ass, and you'd be more like subconsciously attracted to it because in your head you're thinking oh that guy's going to be a, um, a more feasible mate because he can he can thrust and create create a baby and like at the end of the day like we're, we're animals all we care about is survival proliferation of our species and like um girls have the same kind of things where girls as they ovulate they wouldn't even necessarily notice it but they start to become more assertive Maybe more aggressive, but definitely more assertive, more confident through ovulation without knowing it at all. Like their core body temperature goes up. Generally speaking, um, this is not a, a cut and fast rule, but it's generally speaking, their core body temperature goes up. You know, that's their prime time. Whereas they're going through the period, they're more cold, they're more, um, they're more, I guess, closed off. They're more emotional. They don't want to have anything to do with that because that's just the perfect evolutionary programming for survival of the human species. Yeah. But again, like knowing what role the glutes play, how much of a thrusting role, how much of a strength explosive role do females play in evolution? Not as much. Like women were, again, this is not to be politically incorrect or whatever it is, but the female role in a, in a, in a species was more nesting, was more staying at, staying, staying at home. I don't want to say it like that, but staying, cooking, cleaning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, while, while the men were out hunting and fighting the saber tiger and fending off invading tribes, the women were there. They would play a much more of an endurance role with their, yeah. with their structure where they had to, be able to withstand a long amount of time posturally um, in certain positions or walking across vast across a savanna or whatever it may have been, um, and any developments in the in the female structure like the wide hips that would be purely genetic. It wouldn't be because they've trained a certain way and their body wanted to grow a wider way. So it's no, that's to allow for childbirth for no other thing. So I don't know how we got onto onto that specifically. Oh, glutes. We're talking about glutes. Yeah, guys, guys are not wanting to grow. Uh, well, guys in the company want to grow glutes, but girls' company want to grow their glutes. They want to grow delts. Um, the more intelligent females would be like, I want to grow my quads. I want to grow my hamstrings. The most intelligent girls would be like, I really want to grow my calves as well, because for a female competitor uh, on stage. It's not necessarily about, I mean, as much as it is about the glutes, but I'll tell you what, what rounds out a physique the most is a pair of calves and a pair of delts. If you have everything else, what makes the physique look that much more balanced is even developments of the delts proportionate to the to the calves. If the calves are really, really just nothing at all and you've got big delts, it makes the physique look a little bit weird, just, just unusual on, on guys and on girls. You want that balance there. Um, but again... 
that's where people are only looking into. But aesthetically, what are we not hearing? We're not hearing about the arms. We're not hearing about the chest. Those are the big two that really aren't being prioritized for girls because they're saying, you know what? I don't need big bulky arms. Um, I don't need shredded, shredded arms. And I definitely don't need chest because I've got fake tits. Or even if I, if I didn't have fake tits, the chest muscle, it looks too manly to be all striated. I don't necessarily want that on stage. So that's what I guess gets neglected, the chest and the arms, um, for to bias all the other muscle groups. And that's the biggest mistake because what we've got to understand is that we don't want to look at this purely from aesthetics. We've got to understand that muscles just are not about looks. Training something like the arms is so, so important for women. Why? Because they're, they're a muscle. Muscles like the triceps, especially the long head, that provides stability to the shoulder, to the scapula, um, and for, for, for proper elbow health as well. And the biceps and the triceps, they play a huge role in, in terms of stability and eccentric strength of the elbow and the shoulder joints and keeping everything healthy. If you never train them, or train it only through an, an aesthetic lens, not worrying about this whole endurance and stabilizing role that they play um, as just functional muscles, you're going to have a lot of issues. You're going to have a lot of wrist pain. You're going to have a lot of issues with the elbows. You're going to have a lot of shoulder issues, which a lot of girls do tend to deal with. Same thing happens with the chest. You know, the exact same thing happens there. Like most girls, they don't want to train the chest, or if they do, it's maybe just one half-fast exercise here or there, um, like a couple of presses, and that's about it. But what we've got to look at here is understanding that muscles play this really, really big role with structural balance and integrity and proper biomechanics, proper movements. And that, again, women, they're very, very different to men structurally. They're not just little men. They're not just little humans. They have a, a, wider, um, a wider hip structure. You have all these different structural differences between males and females that we need to consider. And that's what is missing out. And then I would say is what's giving prominence to a lot of the injuries that you asked about. So like the biggest thing that girls have that guys don't is boobs. Okay. Simple as that. Like you've got boobs, like based on obviously your own genetics, your own God-given talents there, um, you may have larger or smaller boobs. But again, as well, you also, a lot of girls have breast augmentation. They've got, they got fake boobs. That has to be considered. Because, again, people look at it and say, oh, I've got fake boobs or I've got really big boobs. I don't need to worry about training chest because of boobs. But it's like, well, the boobs, they start to change your weight loading mechanics. Imagine for a guy, if a guy had to hold a few kilos extra loading on their chest, on above their, on front of their chest muscles, that's going to change your loading mechanics of the spine. That's going to change everything up and downstream through the neck, down through the hips, down to the lower back, down into down through the ankles, based on that little shift of weight. Now, of course, how much of a weight shift and load distribution is that going to factor in for? That depends on you know the size of the boobs, obviously. But like it or not, that's different. That is tissue on top of your muscle. If we were to take a blank canvas of a human of a human skeletal structure and then put on top of it pecs, put put on top of it muscle. Girls have extra tissue of boobs, and that's going to throw everything off. And that requires a bigger need to then balance things out. If you just train it like a guy does, or if you just train your body like a guy does, or if you completely neglect training the chest altogether, or not worrying about and not factoring in the consideration of boobs and having boobs in general, that's like, well, 
that's where you're going to get a lot of issues in like the thoracolumbar junction, which is that that area right below the thoracic, right where the thoracic spine meets the lumbar spine. So it's right above the small back or like that lower lat mm-hmm. upper erector region. Um, that junction there, that's what commonly gets really screwed up in a lot of girls, and it gets it gets super super stiff that muscle. So if you think about it, that structure of the spine, it gets stiff because of the muscle attaching to it is put under a lot of strain. That muscle that's put under a lot of strain is put on extra strain to balance out on a seesaw the extra loading through the boobs. So what is that muscle? That's the psoas. That's the hip flexor. So I don't know how much you yeah. know about anatomy, but to paint a picture there, the psoas is your hip is one of your hip flexor muscles. It attaches somewhere on the on the femur. It runs up from from the thigh bone up through your body and it attaches to the lumbar and the thoracic spine. Specifically through the lower regions of the thoracic spine and the upper region and the whole lumbar spine. So around that thoracolumbar junction. Now, it runs from the front of your body, attaching through the, the femur, through to the back, touching your spine. And if you can imagine a seesaw, um, imagine on one end of the seesaw being that psoas. The pivot point of that um, seesaw being the thoracolumbar junction. And then the other side of that seesaw being your boobs. So if you have boobs or your chest in general, if you've got more weight there, that's more loading on one side of the seesaw, which means your psoas or your hip flexors have to get tighter and stronger to balance out that seesaw. And all of that is rotating around the pivot point of the thoracolumbar junction, which is why it gets so jammed up, which is why the hip flexors are so tight. It's all because of the boobs. Well, maybe not all because of, but it's... You would never think that. No, you wouldn't. You would never but... think that. You would just think, oh, so I'm not chain chest. Oh, it's fine, whatever. Like, it's not going to massively impact, like, the opposite end of your body. Like, yeah. It's exactly right. You don't, you don't think of it kind of as, like, a whole, like, ball. Yeah, but, like, the human body, like, that's, this is what bodybuilders have fucked up the most through decades of flex magazines or whatever it is, is that they're training body parts in isolation. They're training the body in isolation. I mean, that's a whole other conversation for another day, but um, like, I don't do a lot of body part splits anymore with, with bodybuilding athletes. It's like, no, the body was made to work as an integral unit. Something like the chest or having extra loading on the chest, that plays into the psoas and the hip flexors and the lower back all through that, through those mechanisms we just spoke about, how having extra load in your boobs, that's going to put extra um, – load on one end of the seesaw, you've got to balance out that seesaw being the psoas or being the hip flexors on the other end. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of undue pressure and strain. So what do a lot of girls have? they got a lot of stiffness there. They have a lot of stiffness in their thoracic spine, the upper back, like around the shoulder blade chest region. That area is really, really stiff and kyphotic. They get the rounded shoulders. Um, to compensate for that, their lower back then becomes hypermobile. It becomes extra loose. And then they get lower back issues because they've got instability through the lower back. they got a weak core as a result of that. And then the hip flexors get even tighter as a result of that. It's this whole self-fulfilling cycle where it's, it's all fucked up. Now, I can't say it got caused by boobs per se, like, but de- boobs definitely play into it. Yeah. Boobs definitely have a part to play in this whole paradigm of why I see girls having lower back issues. And because training isn't designed for girls with boobs and taking that into consideration, they're getting this lower back pain. That's why 99% of the population of females experience lower back issues. It's not the only cause, but it's definitely part of it that needs to be considered. Now, 
how much does it need to be considered into? That depends on the cup size uh, and the amount of weight distribution that's going to be thrown off. Doesn't mean, like we were saying last time, doesn't mean you've got to put a program together based on your cup size. Like, but, but I think it would work. <laughs> I think it could long term be something to think about. Um, but just understand that if a girl has, you know, size E cups um, as, as, as a breast, that's very, very different to, to having mosquito bites at the front of her chest. Very, very different look. Yeah. You know, like it's, and we understand this. Like, there are girls who get, who get breast reduction surgery. Why do they do that? Not to slap God in the face, but to, because they're getting lower back issues from having too big a cup size and it's hurting the lower back. So we can understand that. If we can understand that specific population, why can't we understand that for every single girl having loading at the front of the chest? Whether, even though it's not an E or an F size cup, having a B or a C or a, or a D or an A size cup still presents itself with the potential to create lower back issues to a lower degree, and it has to be factored in. If we're looking posturally, if we're looking at things like rounded shoulders, if we're looking at things like um, internal rotation at the shoulders or um, having this upper trap dominance, not being able to feel adults contracting, getting neck pain, getting a lot of jaw pain or grinding your teeth, getting a lot of tension headaches, that can all come back to similar kind of aspects. And part of treating that, part of treating all of these issues that we've just spoken about, the boobs as well, it comes down to training the chest. It comes down to taking the chest through its full range of motion intelligently. It doesn't mean doing a million sets of cable crossovers, um, but it means training the pecs the way that they were meant to be trained, focusing on things like a lot of dips, a lot of, um, a lot of pressing movements, a lot of stretch-based movements, and a lot of work for the pec minor, because the pec minor is what's going to posturally lift everything up. It's what's going to open up the thoracic spine a lot more and help with the articulation or the movement of the, the shoulder. All the blade rib cage. Um, so, but you know, no girls are doing that. Girls are like, oh, I don't want to grow a chest, or I do a set of dumbbell press, I'm fine. It's like, no, you need to train the chest properly, intelligently. Not to the same extent that a guy does to try to grow it, but you still do need to train it. Same thing for arms. So that's what's, I guess, really, really missing, and then causing a lot of those issues with with women. And that's just upper body. Like we haven't even gone into into lower body. So I mean. What's the major discrepancy that we see um, women versus men when it comes to the lower body? Not that the girls want to grow their glutes more, but they have wider hips. Like you girls, you'll always, you should, I guess, always have wider hips than guys. If a guy has a wider hip structure in general, um, then maybe he's a bit more feminine. I don't know. <laughs> but, but generally speaking, evolutionary, guys uh, are going to have wider clavicles, wider shoulders, narrower waist narrower or or more um, aligned hip structures as opposed to like the hips versus the knees um, you can pro- probably draw a more vertical line from the hip to the knee to the ankle um, looking at it front on whereas girls you have a wider hip structure so if you were to draw a line from the outside of your hip to the facing facing a girl front on if you were to draw a line from the outside border of the hip to the inside of the knee that would be a sharper angle than it would than you'd see on a guy. That's what's called the Q angle, and that indicates a wider hip structure. That also indicates a lot more force going into the knees. That also indicates a lot more force going through a lot more torque that's being placed on the hip structure. So what do girls get a lot of issues with, especially when they start doing a fuckload of sumo deadlifts, is they start to get a lot of labrum issues in the hip. I can't begin to tell you how many girls have come to me saying I get all these hip issues now since they started doing sumo deadlifts. 
is because you know what? As much as you'll feel your glutes doing sumo deadlifts, they're probably not a good exercise to be doing all the time for girls, especially with heavy loading and a lot of frequency because of your hip structure. It was not designed to be put into those kind of end range positions um, because it bashes up the hip structure. And then, like, is it because you can, they're going in? So when you're sumo deadlifting, you're kind of pushing them out. Is that kind of why? Yeah, like essentially. You're placing your body into this unnatural position of external rotation, which, again, I do believe girls should be doing it. I do believe guys should be doing it. Like You should be taking your body through the most awkward extreme ranges of motion as possible because life is all about going through those ranges of motion. You know, people are like, oh, my God, don't lift with a rounded back or whatever. I'm like, you know what? How do you tie your shoelaces? How do you pick? How do you pick anything off the ground? You round your back. You know, you, you go to a you go to a children's okay. playground, watch them playing around. They're doing shit with a rounded back. I remember and this is a story from a friend of mine where um is a is a powerlifting. It was he's a strength coach. He owns a gym up in Sydney, and he was telling me a story where he one of his clients he started training the client's kids, and the kids were doing Olympic weightlifting, and these are like 10, 11 year old boy and girl. And the dad was like, oh, isn't that dangerous getting them lifting? It's really, really scary. And and as he was saying that, he was the kids were playing and the guy, the, the boy, he lifted up the girl on his shoulders with a rounded back. Like he picked the girl up off the ground with a like on his like a piggyback kind of thing with the girl resting on his shoulders with a rounded back. And the guy was like, oh, they're just playing. Look how fun yeah. that is. They're, they're having fun. And my friend, um, Sebastian, the coach, he was like, oh, my God, did you just say that was fun? Like, this girl is going – this guy is going through end-range flexion of the spine under load, loading like with a man – like loading up with like a heavy barbell essentially on the back, on the shoulders, and you're saying it's fun, whereas when I put them through a structured program with dumbbells yeah. and weights, with pretty barbells, with even weight distribution, you're saying that's dangerous because you're scared of that. That's such a good way to think about it. That is such interesting way to think about it. That's the thing. Life is unstructured. Everything that we do with our body is unstructured. Our body's made to move into unnatural or, or what we deem as unnatural posture. That's that's actually natural. What we do in the gym, that is completely unnatural. But for some reason, we've identified that as being structurally safe and structurally sound. There is nothing natural about lifting an evenly distributed weight on a barbell. Nothing. Having pretty handles to hang on to, nothing. That's not. We don't see that ever in our environment. So tr- expecting to be able to do that is 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 crazy. Like I'm sure. Like have you? Like what? What do you deadlift? What can you lift off the ground on a barbell? I'm so bad. Like I'm definitely not that person. <laughs> like oh, I can deadlift like X. Um, the, I haven't done it in a while. The last time I think yeah I did like eighty for five. Okay, okay, that's that, that's not. Bad. And look, what do you weigh? Like fifty kilos or so? Fifty, sixty kilos? Oh god, not good with kilos. Um, How many pounds I'm do you a, weigh? I'm 154 pounds at the moment. Okay, okay, so I've got no idea on the map, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that's that's not very much at all. Like it, it's it's maybe I know 135 pounds is 60 kilos, so you're about 65ish or so, which is not much. But you're lifting above your body weight. Oh wait, you're deadlifting above your body weight for reps. Yep, yeah, I've just easily, calculated. You know? I'm about 70 kg, okay. which is actually apparently quite big okay. in the world world, but I'm five foot ten. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're five ten. Okay, well, there you go. That's actually very, very small for your height. I thought you were shorter. That's why I thought you might have been smaller. Um, uh, but, but yeah. Anyway, that means fuck. That means Joe must be like a giant. How tall is Joe? Um, well, this is down to discretion, but uh, he's like just my height. 
He doesn't okay. ever wear heels, right. okay. I wonder why, but yeah. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Okay, I understand. But look, you're lift, you're lifting, you know, 80 kilos. You're lifting more than your body weight. Yeah. Have you ever tried to lift a person who weighs 80 kilos? No. Off the ground? Never. <laughs> like, I'm not sure there's ever going to be a scenario where you have to. Maybe if you're cleaning up a dead body, who knows? I don't know what you, what line of work you work in. But, <laughs> but out of curiosity, if you find a person or anybody who weighs 80, even 60 kilos, even 50 kilos, any of your friends... Get them to lie down on the ground and try to lift them up and move them across the room. It's fucking hard. Like, it's, it's, it's difficult because it's uneven. It's a weird weight distribution. But the point I mean is, like, what we do in life is so unnatural. So we've got to train for that. Going back off that tangent, back to sumo deadlifting, girls should sumo deadlift. Girls should deadlift in general. They should do everything. But the amount of frequency, the amount of volume, the amount of intensity that girls end up using because they, they feel their glutes work so much, that's not ideal. Same as anything, same as any other exercise, you know, like for a guy, they shouldn't be doing certain exercises over and over again because it's putting the body, for sumo deadlift specifically, it's putting that much more external rotation torque on the hip joint because you're externally rotating the femur so, so much to get into that position. When you couple that with your natural hip structure of having that sharper Q angle, of having a wider hip structure to a wider hip to knee ratio, that's significant. That's going to create a lot more force going through the knee. That's going to create a lot more force going through the hip. You keep bashing that away, that's going to, that's going to eventually snap. That's going to cause a lot of issue. That's why all these girls get the issues with the hip structure. They get so much tightness in their hips. They get so much tightness there that pulls into their lower back. It's in lower back pain. They get all this pain on the, on the medial side of their knee. And it just adds up over and over again because they're just trying to do an exercise that they feel all the time in their glutes, but they're not realizing about the ramifications. They're not properly meeting all their prerequisites for that exercise, or they're not balancing it out properly. They're not taking into account their hip structure and the cue angles and how to balance all that out. So what does that mean really? Like, like girls are not made to be doing a lot of running, for example, like a lot of, because it's very, very repetitive. It's very, very high impact on the hip and the knee structure. When you couple that with that wider knee to hip ratio, that starts to bash up on the knees a lot more. That starts to bash up on the hips a lot more relatively to a guy who has that more of a neutral alignment, I guess, of the of the knees to hips. They don't get as much of a bashing up posture, which, you know, again, it makes sense. If you look back evolutionary, guys are the ones who are typically doing a lot more running, a lot more exertion in that sense for survival, for fighting off tribes, for chasing down a saber tooth tiger or whatever it is. That's what guys are meant to do, whereas girls play a more sedentary, slow, general walking-based um, role in their life. So their hips have evolved that way. When you start running, when you start doing a lot of certain exercises, certain movement patterns over and over and over again with a wider wider hip-to-knee ratio, you're going to start bashing up on structures, specifically like the medial calf. Like most girls, if they touch on that medial head of the calf, there's going to be a lot of just yuckiness there. If they track up that medial calf right behind the knee, I guarantee they're going to feel a lot of yuckiness and just disgustingness back there behind the knee on the medial side um, because – Sorry, is that more during prep as well, potentially, because you're doing excess cardio or not? Definitely. Like, okay, it can definitely manifest more during prep. And, like, that's, that's, that's fascinating in itself. So, like, it could be more cardio. It could be more running in general. It could be anything. Like, this is looking at girls not just as competitors but just as people in general. If they're doing a lot of endurance sports or sports in general, more, a lot of just any exercising, um, that's not balanced. But definitely through prep. 
more stairmaster work, more elliptical work, more treadmill walking. You're bashing up that upper medial calf, back of the knee, medial side um, or mid midline side region of the calf and the popliteus. Now, here's what's really interesting. So if, if girls were now to just to grab that area of their calf, the inside of the calf or the back of the knee on the inside um, where the calf inserts, I guarantee they're going to find some just disgustingness there. What also runs through that section? A lot of lymphatic tissue. There's a big clustering of lymph nodes and lymphatic tissue that runs through that popliteal, back of the knee, medially region. There's also traditional Chinese medicine, a few meridians that correlate specifically with the female reproductive system and the gallbladder that run through that spot behind the knee. So if you're bashing up that soft tissue all the time, you're going to clog all that shit up. And I've seen that happen with a lot of girls where they got really shredded, but their legs wouldn't get lean and it wasn't necessarily a hormonal thing. Or they were lean in the quads and their calves weren't lean. They just had a lot of fluid retention. And that was... I see that a lot. I do see that a lot with girls saying, I can get lean, but I can never get lean in my legs. Like Yeah, yeah. Now, now definitely... Definitely with girls, like, there is a whole estrogen dominance that can play into it where they do have just a harder time losing body fat in the lower limbs in general, like quads, hamstrings, butt, and the calves. But And that can definitely happen. That's got to be factored in, and that's part of this as well. But a big thing I see with some people is just they're relatively lean, but then they've got cankles. Like, the girls, they've got leanish legs or, like, even distribution, but then they've got just fat calves, or they've got a lot of fluid. It's not fat. It's literally fluid because the lymphatic system is, is made – it's a waste removal system. It's, it's, it's there to excrete toxins and remove toxins. So if it gets all clogged up because the soft tissue surrounding that area is all gummed up from overuse, you're going to have a, a decreased um, ability to detoxify. And what are you meant to detoxify? I'm not talking about toxins like plastics or whatever. I'm talking about detoxifying your natural endogenously produced estrogen hormones. So then you get this buildup of hormones in your body. That starts to fuck with your estrogen dominance in general. That causes more fat gain. That causes more inability to burn fat. That causes irregular periods and who knows what else. And it could all be a structural thing from too much cardio or too much forces going through that medial calf region, the back of the knee, that bashes up the soft tissue, that then gets stuck and tacks down onto the lymphatic system. And that can then also correlate with the Chinese meridian going into the, the ovaries and the gallbladder, fucking up their ability to digest fats or to break down fats and all of their detoxification processes. Like, you see how complex that can be? Do you see how interrelated? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just <laughs> mentally going for every single body part you just mentioned. I'm just trying to do like a dot to dot in my, in my leg. I'm like, yep, that to that. It's just, it's meant you, this, like last time you blew my brain, but you're doing it again. But <laughs> I love it though. I think it's so interesting and it makes a lot of sense because sometimes you see girls that are doing more and more cardio. So for example, myself last year, I was getting better results when my food was going down in comparison to the cardio because my hips could not take it. Honestly, I, yeah. said, I said this to you last time. I was trying to do Stairmaster. It was just a note. Was I couldn't keep mm -hmm. up. Not mm -hmm. because cardio-wise I was dying. It's because joint-wise it was just too much in that kind of planar field. But I just thought it was me being a bit useless. When actually I probably just wasn't really having that self-awareness about what, like, how do I usually, like, what's going to work for me, basically. Yes, my coach is telling me to do a Stairmaster, but... If maybe a bike is easier, it's just trying to kind of 
find have that self-awareness mm-hmm. of what is going to work for you and maybe not rushing into something like, like a prep and actually learning about your body a bit better i think looking back that's probably something that i didn't do properly um until probably after my show exactly right so it's I mean, you can see just how complicated all of this stuff really can be and really can get where, like, let's say we have this girl who can't get her legs lean. Now, what would most coaches say? Let's say, we've got to, we've got to decrease your food, we've got to decrease calories, or we have to increase your cardio, or we've got to start taking Nolvidex or Rimidex or Clenbuterol or thyroid. We've got to get you leaner. We've got to shed that excess estrogen. It's like, you can do all that shit, and it might work, but what if the root cause of that girl's inability to burn fat or lose weight or fluid, because it usually is just fluid, in the lower limbs, is because of all this stuck tissue and all these adhesions in the soft tissue in that popliteal region behind the knee. And what if that then causes um, a lot of just fucked up lymphatic flow and screws up maybe the Chinese meridian as well, and then now that plays into excessive hormonal load because you can't detoxify your estrogens properly, and that then... And then you feel like shit. Well, then you feel like shit. It's not about taking yeah. Novodex. It's not about doing more cardio. It's not about saying, oh, you got to suck it up and work harder. It's about, no, you got to work more intelligently. Now, I don't know if that, yeah. that's, 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 that may not be the root cause. It's probably multifactorial. But the fact is, a coach should be, or an athlete, should be taking everything into consideration. You can't look at the human body and try to isolate cardio and calories and drugs and training. They all have to be related together. That's all got to be related with your soft tissue structure. That's all got to be related with your history. So knowing that you've had a hip injury in the past it's not just saying look you can't do the step because it gives you hip pain it's like what probably caused that hip issue in the first place maybe it was too much and maybe it's part of your hip structure okay being a tall girl you've got you're probably going to have longer femurs that's going to mean you're going to have more force going through that hip joint maybe you were training and doing a lot of running or repetitive strain stuff in the past and maybe for whatever reason you had a lot and that would have then caused a lot of stuck tissue around that that medial calf medial or knee kneecap region and for whatever reason your knee was more robust than your hip so instead of your knees giving way your hips gave way and and then that caused everything to be dislocated like that could have been what it was um and that caused all the excessive issues in your body so knowing all of that as your broad 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 history it's not just saying okay we've got to make you not do the stepper anymore it's like we need to assess that structurally and make sure that you're meeting the right prerequisites functionally in terms of how you can move and fire your muscles and this comes down to all girls like the big areas that girls need to be working on is things like um glute med so glute medius so more single leg exercises they generally speaking need to do a little bit more vmo vastus medialis or that that teardrop muscle on the quad they need to do more of that work in general they need to do more medial hamstring work with a, so an internally rotated or a wide stance, hip extension-based movements, um, and they need to do more lateral calf work as well. All of this is just to balance out the fact that you have wider hips and um, a wider hip structure and a wider hip-to-knee ratio. Simple as that. Like guys need to do that too, but they don't need to do as much because they don't have that structure. The same way that girls need to train their chest a certain way to make up to account for having boobs they need to do this for their lower body to balance out the hip structure and the knee structure and then allow them to then go into the stepper. Because like going on the stepper isn't wrong. Running isn't wrong. Doing all that shit is not bad for you. But if you haven't met the prerequisites of your structure and your body having the right balance muscularity-wise and stability-wise, then the stepper, as you found, is the worst thing for you. And it creates a lot of these um, the, these issues yeah. um, with, with training and injuries. 
it was awful last year. Like, I felt so... Everyone's on their Stairmaster and on IG stories, and I was like, no, not for me. But (laughs) do you know what? It's really interesting. Since taking more of, like... Because I was kind of avoiding my hip problem for quite a long time. I think psychologically, I just was not... I just mm. was too frustrated because I just felt I couldn't do anything still. Even though I got into my yes. weight train to do, to fix the hips, I still was feeling that limit. And since, like, my show last year in June and taking that time, it's still it's still probably not there 100%, but it was really interesting because when I did... I did a talk a few weeks ago in London, and it was like this fitness event. Mm-hmm. And I thought, right, they said, all right, we're going to do cardio, like, free... Well, three 30-minute sessions, and I was like, oh, shit. Like, in my head, I was like, you know, bad memories of PE, all this stuff. And it was really good, because when I went, I did the spin class, mm-hmm. and my hips and knees were fine. But a year ago, I would have been in agony. I probably would have actually not done it. I would have made some excuse. But actually putting those yeah. little, doing those little things that are not bodybuilder-like, but actually great for functional stuff has really helped me. And I feel like this year I can say to my coach, give me whatever I can actually work with this now. But I think it's really interesting. You talk about like the prerequisites. I can't even say that word. Prerequisites. Is that the word? Yeah. Prerequisites. So what are kind of the key prerequisites? I can't say that word, Eugene. You can't say it for me. <laughs> what are the prerequisites that you need for a prep? Do you say in terms from a training perspective? Cause a lot of girls, yeah. Me, myself, probably, you rush in slightly too quickly. You see everything on Instagram, it looks great, but I think it's just having that, what awareness do they have need to have about training, about their bodies, before they probably put themselves through that prep? Yeah. So so before I get to that, actually, because that's a really big point, but I want to actually, because something that you just mentioned there was like typical bodybuilding exercises versus like a more functional exercise approach or whatever you were saying you were doing to help fix up yeah. your hips. Like that's again another mistake that people have made with their um their training because they they see an exercise as bodybuilding exercise but no other athlete does that like you have yeah. any kind of like sprint athlete they're doing squats do they call that a functional exercise do they call it a sprint exercise do they call it a bodybuilding exercise even though Tom Platts would squat and he's a bodybuilder with big fuck off legs it's like well yeah. no it's just a squat. Why are we categorizing exercises as functional versus bodybuilding, or whatever? Like, exercises are exercises. Exercises just serve a purpose. Like, ex- there is a very valid reason to do every single exercise you can think of. Like, they all fit into some kind of paradigm, which brings us to that talk about prerequisites. So, we've got to understand that through a prep, you are going to probably bias certain movement patterns, certain exercises, certain things more often to bring about a certain look. You're probably going to do a higher variety of exercises. You're probably going to do more repetitions of exercises in terms of like more frequency. So you're going to do a lot more squatting. You're going to do a lot more lunging, a lot more leg pressing. You're going to do a lot more of these like meat and potato style exercises to bring about growth, to bring about fat loss, to bring about a certain look to the physique um, in terms of just like the shape as well. So if we know that we need to be able to do high rep squatting, or if we know that we need to be able to do a lot of lunging, for example, or certain exercises, what do we have to do in order to be able to do that for a long period of time without snapping? That's how you start to work out what the prerequisites are. So for you, for example, I remember when we spoke last time, you said when you do lunges, you've really got to think about where your knee's tracking and and like how things are moving to make sure you don't snap a hip or, or hurt anything bad. Yeah, the knock knee problem. It's just like if I literally, that's probably still something I am actually still working on now. It's just because mm. if I take my mind off it for two seconds, 
I actually did a video of it. My knees just come straight back in again. And it's just trying to turn. Well, yeah. turn at, yeah. at the same time, it's not turning them up too much. But yeah, sorry, you were saying. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's a that's a common problem, especially with taller taller people, taller women as well, with longer femurs. But so what we've got to understand, like, first of all, do you need to lunge in a prep? No, you don't. I mean, you could just do a single leg press, but let's let's say you did have to lunge in a prep for whatever reason. That was part of the things that you have to do because, like, lunges they're a great exercise, very efficient, very good to hit the glutes properly. It works the glutes in their full range of motion. It works them through um, all of their roles as stabilizers and as a power output exercise. It can be very, very good for them for development overall. But if you can't lunge properly, then you can't. Then you're not meeting the prerequisites to be able to lunge, which means you then need to do, in terms of prerequisites, whatever you have to do in order to be able to lunge properly, whether it's more stability like glute clamshells or who knows what, to be able to build up that capacity to be able to load up the lunge and do it effectively for growth in a workout, not just once, but multiple times a week over the course of a three to six month prep. And that's what we're looking at. That's how you work out the prerequisites. So what are the main ones that I see with girls? It's a need for stability of the hip joint. So you're looking at usually glute med. Um, you're looking at a lot of lower abdominal embracing strength. You're looking at strength, um, like lower quad VMO development to stabilize the knee. You're looking at that medial hamstring for knee stability and that lateral calf as well for knee stability and to balance out um, the extra, that Q angle, that wider hip to knee structure. They're, they're the major lower body prerequisites. Upper body-wise, we're looking at proper function of the shoulder joints, proper function of the scapula. We're looking at can you move pain-free? Do you have? Do you get a lot of headaches? Do you have um, trap dominance? Do you have the inability to feel delts, or do you get a lot of um, headaches and neck tension when you train delts? Do you have a rounded posture? Do you have lower back pain? All of those things should not be on your mind going into a prep. You should be completely robust moving into a prep because we know that going through a prep, you go into bias certain things that could potentially make you more imbalanced, which is not bad. You know, you go through any sport, Usain Bolt coming out of his prep for the Olympics, he's going to be imbalanced. He's going to have fucked up hips, fucked up knees, fucked up lower back. And that's fine. It's not wrong. You, you, you look at any, like I just finished reading Andre Agassi's biography, the amount of pain he endured through all of his career, it's fucked up. Like, and tennis players are the worst because they're going through open after open after open all year. They're playing at an elite level. That screws up the body. Same as bodybuilders. We're going through certain patterns that screw up our body. It's not bad. It's not wrong. All you have to do, though, is respect that fact and know that you've got to meet the prerequisites prior to going through that intensive prep in terms of not having pain. We can understand that if you start out a prep and you're already in pain and you're already dysfunctional, prep is not going to fix you. Prep is not going to make you better. So you've got to do the I don't like to use the word rehab or prehab, but you've got to do the right prehab stuff before you start the prep yeah. to be able to to prep. You know, you call that prepping to prep. Like that's what you need to prepare your body to be able to handle an actual um, a contest prep or whatever it is, whether it's a sporting mm-hmm. prep or anything else. It's just understood by every other sporting athlete and every other sporting endeavor except for bodybuilding and physique preparation. We just want to jump in and take drugs and get on stage in 12 weeks without realizing the prep work that has to go into everything before you do a prep. Yeah, I remember you mentioning last time, it was really interesting about bodybuilders in general, like people call it a sport, but people don't take that sport athlete mentality. So for example, they'll do amazing 12 weeks, and then once off-season's in, they're kind of like, oh, there you go. Exactly right. I mean, 
so you have two you have two different um different people different types of people there categories of people who are fucking it up first of all you have the people who just focus during the contest prep and then just they just drop off the bandwagon afterwards and then you have other people who are like oh bodybuilding is the lifestyle and they they look at it as saying i'm always following my meals i'm always training you know i can't go out to eat or whatever because i'm a bodybuilder and bodybuilding is a lifestyle. It's like no you're a fucking idiot it's instead looking at it and saying bodybuilding is a lifestyle just like any other sport can be a lifestyle. Like Usain Bolt, sprinting is a lifestyle. Yeah. Roger Federer, tennis is a lifestyle. But these sporting athletes and, and their coaches, they understand that there's a need for periodization of that lifestyle. Like you are always going to be an athlete. You're always going to be a tennis player. You're always going to be a boxer. You're always going to be a sprinter. Doesn't mean you've got to go balls to the walls year round. Yeah. We understand, like, from a sporting perspective, with rugby, with football, with tennis, with anything, there is a in-season style of training. Like, when you're on tour, when you're when you're going through the, the football season, the soccer season, whatever it may be, and then there's also, before that's going to be a pre-competitive phase. Before that, there's going to be some kind of off-season phase where you're focusing on building up just some overall capacity. There's also going to be a complete off-recovery phase. So, if we were to look at it, Immediately following competition, there should be you shouldn't jump straight into an off-season growth phase for a bodybuilder, or Usain Bolt shouldn't jump straight back into sprint training. He should jump into some kind of recovery, recuperative cycle where he's focusing on balancing out all the fucked up issues that he's accrued from sprinting. Or Roger Federer needs to balance out his body from months of repetitive strain on tour, going through Wimbledon, through the Davis Cup, through the U.S. Open through the Australian Open, he's got to then balance that out with recovery work, which is not training at all. It's more recuperative. And then he can go through an off-season cycle of training where he's going to start to build up some aerobic fitness, some strength, some overall capacity. And then he's going to get into his pre-competitive work where he's doing more specific drills for the sport of tennis. And then he's going to get through his actual competitive phase of playing tennis. Like, that makes perfect sense. Mm. And then it's rinse, repeat as needed. After he competes, he starts it all again. Yeah. Same as any other sport. But bodybuilders don't do that. They have pre-contests have pre -contests and they have off-season where they're trying to make gains and then they're trying to get lean, grow, bulk, and cut. That's simple as that. But it's like, they're not respecting that. So if they're trying to – that's not – if they're doing that as an athlete and they're calling themselves an athlete, they're not doing the right things for this for the sport of bodybuilding. So how can you call bodybuilding a sport when the actual athletes aren't treating it like a true sport? It's not a sport, and it never will be a sport until the athletes start taking it seriously as a true athlete would. If Roger Federer was a bodybuilder, he would take those different four or five different cycles of training of pre-competitive, competitive, post-competition, off-season, those four different cycles of training, he would be looking at that as an athlete. Bodybuilders don't. They just go. They just grind year round and say it's all about the hustle. It's all about working fucking harder, and it's not about that. You must miss, like from what you're saying, you must. A lot of athletes must miss a massive, massive chunk out of that process. Yeah. And like they might be fine, but like what kind of repercussions and you know from a mental standpoint and a physique standpoint and a health standpoint, it could be really detrimental in the long term. But people are always looking for that next show. Pretty much. And that's what's fucked up, you know, because you're exactly like here's it's kind of similar. Between March, March is the big shows around the Arnolds, March and April, and then there's end of the year, like September through to October or so. So they're the, they're the two big seasons. If you're doing both, you are literally prepping year round. And if you do multiple years in a row, you're nonstop. 
And that is that's going to accrue. That's going to one thing that you can't improve as much because there is no improvement stage where you're actually growing muscle tissue, but you're not having time off to recuperate. So you can only go so far. You'll get two or three years into it, and then you'll burn out. And what do most people do? They do two or three preps or two or three years, and they do really well, and then they can't ever get back to that point ever again. They're all kinds of fucked up. You do see that. You do see that quite a lot, actually, with athletes just can't really having to just get completely beat, burn out, or they get to the top, and then they just go, no, I'm done. Like Exactly. I mean, look at... You know, I don't, I don't like to, I don't want to name names here, but look at some of the top Olympia competitors, male and female. Some of the big names you were hearing about a few years ago in male and female physique, fitness or whatever, or, um, or bodybuilding as well. What's happened with them now? What's happened to those girls? What's happened to those guys? They've fallen off the, the, the competitive field because their body can't keep up anymore because they were doing the Arnold's, then they were doing the Olympia, then they were doing another pro qualifying show throughout the year, and they did that for two or three years straight immediately after coming out of the amateur ranks where they were doing three or four years in the amateur ranks competing year-round as well. Of course something's going to snap. Now look at a guy like Phil Heath. When does he compete? Once a year. He, like, as much as I might not agree, because, again, I can see both sides of the argument. I can see, like, a professional athlete does have some kind of duty to be a presence in the sport as much as possible. And that may entail competing. So I can understand people saying, you know what, Phil Heath should do the Arnold's or whatever because it's good for the sport. It's what the fans want to see. And I can I can respect that. Like, that's how it was through the 90s with all the bodybuilders. But I can also understand, you know what, Phil is being a really smart athlete. Yeah. He is being – it's not business. I mean, part of it is business. What's saying he wants to make sure he wins, the, he wins the Olympia. But I also respect the fact that he's being a very, very, very intelligent athlete. And he's saying that I need to take time off. I need to not train for a while. I need to come away from the gym. I need to recuperate. And then when it's go time, it's go time. And he's giving himself that much more longevity. You know, he's, when he won his first Olympia, he's not thinking about the next one. He's thinking about the next 10. He's thinking, what do I need to do to make sure I can have that longevity? And that's what we should be thinking about, but nobody does. They're, thinking, they're always thinking about the next show. They're always thinking about the next Instagram post. They're always thinking about the instant gratification, which is what's fucking everybody up. They're not thinking long-term about the approach saying, you know what? Even after the competitions, in your 40s, in your 50s, in your 60s, you're not going to be competing then um, unless you're Dexter Jackson or like these random anomalies. You're, you're going to be broken or if you're not taking a smart approach. But in your 60s, you still have decades of life to live. Those lives to live in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they can be really fucked up years in terms of quality in a nursing home. If you don't take the time right now in your 20s and 30s to set everything up, but we can't see that because – well, people can't see that because they can't look ahead like that. You know, as humans, you don't have that wired into our mindset. You've got to train that long-term approach. But understand that. Like, how old are you? 20. Good question. 24. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I had to think for a second. I'm like, what? Yeah. 24 years. So 24 years old. Like, it's, it's very, very hard to fathom what life is going to be like in your 50s. But the fact is, like, you have a whole okay, – when you hit 55, you still have – Generally speaking, at least another 24, 25 years of your life to live, generally speaking, which is your entire lifetime now. Now, imagine that entire 24, 25 years. Imagine as a 24-year-old now, if the last 24 years of your life was absolute fucking hell, 
where you were in pain, you couldn't move, you couldn't breathe, you were, you were popping pills of medications um, every single day, and you just had no functionality whatsoever. Imagine that. Yeah. How shit would that be? That is what your life could look like from 55 through to 75, 80, if you don't do that, the right things right now. But we can't think about that. We can't look, look at that, but we should because those decades, you're going to care a lot about them when you hit that point in your 50s. And 50 is going to creep up to you very, very, very quickly. People think people don't realize that, but your 30s, your 40s, 50s, they're going to they're going to just jump out at you overnight. And you're like, holy fuck, now I'm all broken. Mate, I can't believe we're like end of March now. I'm like, fuck. Yeah. And I literally thought, like Joe was saying today, he goes, oh, you're tw- you're 25 soon. I was like, I'm halfway to 50, and that was like, damn. But I know exactly what you mean though, because <laughs> I've seen a lot of my family members like they start doing fitness which is great, but then yeah. when they get to like maybe like 40, 50, they kind of go off the wayside. But I, I, another point yeah. I said, which was really interesting, is, look again, looking at the longevity, like, I see a lot, I got kind of, well, people were very confused last year when I only did one show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there were like loads of different reasons to why I only did one. There was because I was setting up Compact, I was doing, wanted to do the podcast, I wanted to yeah. do loads of different things. But at the same time, I just knew I wasn't ready, to be honest, and I knew that my body was literally like, no. But I know that some girls really struggle because everyone else around them is doing 6,000 shows, and the next question that everyone asks is, when's your next show? When's your next show? And yeah. that internal yeah. pressure, especially on Instagram, you're like, oh, damn, I've got to do another show. And sometimes, as you say, you don't need to. Like, you don't have to, just because everyone else is doing it, what's to stop more people taking a Phil Heath approach? There's literally nothing, you know what? There's there's nothing about that. There's, people should be doing that. They should be taking the, the Phil Heath mindset, I guess, the Phil Heath approach with – um. It's just not even the Phil Heath approach. It's, it's the athletic mindset. It's the, it's the fucking intelligent mindset to say, like, you know what? It doesn't make sense. No other athlete, probably apart from tennis players, are on tour year-round where they're just fucking themselves into the ground with, with excessive training volumes, everything else. So if you want to have any kind of longevity, stop listening to Instagram. Stop taking that external pressure to compete. But, you know, no one is out there preaching that kind of message and educating people and saying, you know what, respect your body because it's the only place you're really going to have to carry you through your entire life and it will carry you a lot less further um, or for a lot shorter time span if you fuck with it right now. The fact is the stuff that you do today, the stuff that you do now in your early 20s, in your teenage years, that's going to be the difference between you living to your 70s or living to your 100s. Simple as that. And living living those years pain-free or living them in debilitating health in a nursing home, being drip-fed nutrients because you can't chew properly and you've got to wear a diaper. You know, that's the reality that a lot of people are going to be looking at. Like, look at a guy like Ronnie Coleman. Like, I respect what he's done as an athlete. But had he have taken a Phil Heath approach, he probably could have gone even further and he probably wouldn't be in a fucking wheelchair right now. And I can't – like, I don't – I don't. I don't ever want to. I don't say I talk badly on him. I don't say. I don't say to say that he's wrong, because you know he's he completely revolutionized training. He completely revolutionized bodybuilding yeah. as we know it for the better. You know, in many respects, and he's very admirable for what he does. But I think, wow, had he have known back then, maybe what could have what his life would be like now, or where the life is going to go in the next twenty years, and he has a family, he has kids. You know, that changes everything. Where do you want to – do you want to be around to see grandkids? Do you want to be around to see great-grandkids? Like, I don't know for sure for myself. I can't answer that for him either. You know, so who knows? 
everyone's got their own opinions, their own personality, their own preferences. So it's not judgment on him whatsoever, but he's just a, a very good example. Like, look at him. He's, he's broken right now. He's paying the price for, for not treating it like a pure athlete. But everybody's like, oh, he was the, he was a true athlete because he was, you know, squatting 800 pounds for reps. He was training balls to the walls. Yes, he was, but he might have been able to do it for longer yeah. if he'd been a bit, if the, if the, if the culture back then in the 90s wasn't to compete year round. Like they were doing the British Grand Prix. They were doing every show every year. He, and he was doing all of them. You know, much respect to him. He was doing the Arnolds and the Olympia and everything in between. He was on tour year round. He worked like he worked fucking hard. And that's probably why it wasn't the hard training. It was probably being on tour and competing year round that screwed him up the most and caused all these issues now. I would argue that. So we've got to take we've got to take a step back from that and say, look, as people now, as like I'm not gonna be Miss Olympia. Most people on Instagram aren't gonna be Miss Olympia. Don't fucking compete like you are like you're going to be. You know, don't don't let the pressure of Instagram or the other peer pressure push you into into making poor health decisions. Yeah. Like respect your body, respect your health, respect your longevity. It's gone deep, but I think it's so true. That self-awareness is just so not – it's not there. It is definitely not there at the moment. And I see it a little bit sometimes where – I don't know. I get I, I get vibes from people on Instagram when they're doing their posts. Like, and I, It's weird. I sometimes get vibes when I'm thinking they should put out, but I know they're not. I, another area that I really want to touch on, which we did last time we had the recording, which was really, really interesting, was the difference between... I remember this last year. I did not have a clue what I was feeling, what it was, and, like, was I hormonal? Yeah, was I exactly rich? right. Was I just tired? Like, I think in prep, like, it's really difficult because on one hand you're thinking, right, I've got to really push, push right now. And then on the other yeah. hand you're like... My body's screaming, but I don't know why it's screaming. And it's just having that balance because, I don't know, prep requires you to push yourself. But at the same time, you get a better prep when you know when to maybe slightly break and kind of take a bit of like a rest. You, you know what I mean? So I guess how do you know as a female what which kind of area yep. you're falling into in, that, in, in terms of prep? And maybe how can you kind of fit your training around that as well? Sorry, double loaded question. Yeah. There. Yeah. Okay. So I remember last like it, it, was, it was a deep topic and something that you know, it's multi multifaceted. But essentially, say so, like, how do you know if um, like you're pushing too hard in the gym, um, or if you're yeah. actually overreaching too much in terms of your training, or if you're like simply hormonal at the time of the month or whatever, and it's and you just got to slog it out or whatever. See, that's a really interesting question because I would argue aren't they the same thing overall? Like I can't really talk from a woman's perspective about um, like how disruptive a period is. Like I don't have ovaries, unfortunately, so I can't comment on that. But I can talk from experience of working with hundreds of different women across any kind of platitude of having fantastic hormonal health and really shit hormonal health, having a regular period, having great periods, having really shitty periods, any kind of hormonal balance and whatnot. And I can tell you that the girls who tend to have really screwed up hormonal panels when I'm looking at like a Dutch panel or they have like really, really fucked up statuses of health in terms of looking at their mitochondrial function or looking at um, gut function, gut dysbiosis on, on like an organic acids test. Those girls who are all screwed up, they tend to have like the worst periods. They tend to have most of those overreaching symptoms all the time. So what needs to happen is 
like when, when they feel when you feel tired in a prep, if you're asking the question, shit, is this a hormonal thing or is this training related for me pushing too hard? The hormonal question shouldn't come into the equation because you should have done the necessary prep work prior to that of clearing yourself of those hormonal issues. Now, I'm not going to down talk that, downplay that and say it's easy to fix up hormonal issues or that I'm the expert in doing that because I'm not. I'm not in any way like a female expert specifically. It's not what I try to be. But I can say because I have worked with people who have helped them out in fixing those issues. And you should be able to at least make some improvement to those kind of symptoms so that when you go through a period, not through a prep, when you go through a period, you don't feel tired, you don't feel sluggish, you don't get a lot of pains, you don't get so run down, you don't get anxiety, you don't get moody, or you don't get cravings. Those things aren't necessarily normal. They are common. And some girls, definitely speaking, even when they do have a healthy period and healthy hormonal balance, they may still get those things, but they should be significantly less if you have good balance in your microbiome in your gut and you have good balance and a good hormonal profile as like my gold standard is looking at a dutch panel um to determine what's happening there with with women assuming that's all been checked off then when you're going through a prep if you feel like shit you can probably assume that it's not hormonal and that it is from training and that it is from pushing too hard with cardio or whatever and that you would then do better by pulling back but if you haven't pre-qualified yourself in that sense, where you started out, where you've started out a contest prep, and you are all kinds of fucked up hormonally and with your gut function, and you can't, then you can't differentiate that feeling of shitness through a prep as being associated too much training or to hormones or to gut. So you don't really know. And in that instance, I would tell people pull back on training because you know what that training volume is still going to be fucking up gut function. It's still going to be fucking up hormonal function. So the answer, the short answer is it doesn't matter whether it's overreaching from training or hormonal. You've got to pull back on training when you feel like crap most of the time. Um, and generally speaking, mm. when, um, like for girls, they should be striving before they start out a prep to balance out their hormones, to balance out their gut function, to make sure that they're in the best place to begin with functionally so they can then push in their training and then there will be points in time where it is the case of saying you know what we actually want you overreaching i mean that's a whole nother topic altogether where we do want to overreach at times whether it's in a prep or in a growth phase or outside of any of that you do want to be going through periods of time where you do feel like shit that is part of what we do as athletes and that's intentional as long as it's programmed for as long as it's anticipated i'm happy to let people go and say you know what that's intentional that, that's that's meant to happen. That's part of the process. Part of the process of being a woman is having your period and having a little of hormonal fluctuation and feeling like shit some of the, some time of the month. How shit you feel is a relative thing, and that can definitely be managed better. But we've got to factor that in and say, okay, you're having a you're having a period now. You should be feeling like shit. You should train a certain way as well. Um, like that's a whole other part of it. You should eat a certain way as well. That's another part of it as well. But again, that's a whole just a deep concept to go into with like training and eating and supplementing around a menstrual cycle for women. But we can go into that more next time. I think so. I think so. One thing we mentioned as well in relation to hormones, we really touched a lot on the contraception side. Uh, I've had kind of two different yeah. experiences with this. I'm going to have another different one this year. So... I forgot what we said. Oh, what did we say? <laughs> we said really good stuff about you, dude. Ah, I think I know we mentioned because I, 
like last year I was on contraception throughout the whole of my prep because mm-hmm. um, I would have been on for like a good how long was it maybe like five to six years something like that yep. and I felt very much like zoned out a little bit but mm. on the on the other side I didn't really have to worry about if my period was going to mess up my prep or anything like that but um yeah can you remember what we said yeah so I can't remember exactly what we said but you're giving me some context there to go off which is which is more than enough um so essentially like the, the question would be revolving around like is contraception, whether it's Implanon or it's the pill or it's the mini pill or whatever it is you're using, is that going to fuck up things in a prep? Um, And so there's two sides of the coin there. It can actually help balance everything out in inverted commas because you're taking an exogenous hormone. It's going to flatline your hormonal load. It's going to remove all the peaks and troughs of estrogen, progesterone, et cetera, et cetera, that could then mean fluctuations in fluid, mineral balance, and body fat, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it levels out the playing field and gives you a cleaner, a clean slate to work from with prep, which means things like peak week or whatever, or just general fat loss and training and moodiness, cravings, that's all going to be potentially managed better. However, the question that I always ask people is like, should a period really affect things of those sorts of things and actually shouldn't like again i can't speak from experience and i don't want to downplay what women go through with their period but i'll tell you the last few girls that i've had um who have, who have taken care of everything taken them through their entire prep they haven't they've actually had their period during their during their peak week during their prep like prep day like contest day bang they have their period now people get the people get shit scared when they hear about that and they say they about how it affects them like it fucks they up do them. The way their physique looks like. Yeah. And for these girls, it played no issue whatsoever. Like nothing. Nothing with their fluid, nothing with their carb load, nothing with their body fat. These girls actually ended up winning their shows. And it's like, wow, like they looked the best they ever looked and they felt the best they ever looked and they had their period and they didn't even know they were having their period. They're like, oh shit, I'm bleeding now. I better go put a tampon in um, <laughs> so I don't bleed all over, bleed all over the stage. Yeah. And that's about it. Because like, again, I can't say that every girl's period should be like that. But it, like that's probably the ideal and maybe where you might want to strive towards. Can you ever get there? I don't know. Nobody really can say that answer. But from what I've seen, girls can experience a lot less issues with their period in terms of all those kinds of things if their hormones are in a better place from the start and they manage everything so much better. So I would argue then like there's – Maybe if you're on the pill already, the last thing you want to do is jump off it and start a prep. But if you want, but you know, no one's going to be on the pill for the rest of their life. You know, whether you, whether kids are in your horizon as a woman in general, you're probably not going to be on contraception for the rest of your life because it's not good to be on that contraception for the rest of your life because it's the same as putting a guy from like 13, 14 on testosterone and leaving him on that for the rest of his life. You're going to have some ill effects. Hormones are not meant to always be in your bloodstream. They're meant to have the natural peaks and troughs. That's part of the life cycle. Your receptors for all of those of those hormones, whether it's testosterone, whether it's estrogen, whether it's progesterone, they're meant to go through some some kind of cycle where they're renewed and regenerated. If they're constantly being bashed up from hormonal exposure from the pill or from contraception in some way, it's going to fuck up your um, ability long term to be sensitive to those hormones, and that will then cause a lot of other issues. What issues? I can't even tell you because it's so deep. It's, it, it could be so many things from bloating, from constipation, from diarrhea, from moodiness, from lack of cognitive function, from mental fog, from lack of focus, 
lack of um, attention span, ability to wake up and have energy in the morning, um, thyroid function, all those sort of things come back to being exposed to too much estrogen or not having enough of those peaks and troughs. So you've got to come off the pill eventually. And the fact is, like you're actually, you're saying um, you've been on it for four years or five years or you were on it for four or five years. That's not very long, in all, in the grand scheme of things. I've had a lot of girls come to me. Yeah, I've had a lot of girls come to me where they, they were put on the pill when they were 12, 13 years old to manage painful periods, to manage cystic acne, to manage mood swings or whatever it is. It's like, well, if you've been on it for 13 and you're now 25, 26 or in your early 30s or late 20s, that's like 15, 16 fucking years of being on the pill, of being on hormones. You come off those hormones, you've got to give your body time to balance out again. And I felt like shit. Which is what you experienced. When you came off your pill from being on for four years or so, you had a lot of just – you had a, a balancing out period where you can do things to make it better. You can do things to level things out and, and provide that homeostasis where you're having a more natural peak and trough of your hormones that's more um, manageable. You can do that better, but you still have to go through some kind of time period of, of shitness because there's going to be some rebound for being on the hormones for so long. Mm. When you, and if you were, can you imagine t- multiplying that by three or four times by going to like 15, 16 years instead? That's fucking long. Imagine how long, imagine how long you got to spend recovering from that. And that's, really, that's a conversation you've got to have to a competitor saying, hey, look, you just came off the pill yesterday and you want to compete end of this year, not going to happen. We can do all the pills and the supplements and the herbs in the world. It's probably not going to help your body enough to balance things out and provide homeostasis and then to consolidate and maintain consistency with that homeostasis long term to then expose your body to stress of a contest prep. So now, if you come off the pill, you may be looking at a year or two before you can actually start looking at the stress and rigors of a contest prep. But nobody wants to hear that. Again, it comes back to what we were talking about before with Instagram, fucking everybody's worldview about what's realistic um, and, wanting, and wanting to get the result yesterday. But if you want to have any longevity and actually functionality and actually health long term, you've got to take that approach. Definitely. And I really wanted to come off my pill like halfway through my prep my coach just said no but i honestly just felt so like monotone but like not in a good way yeah and it's actually quite nice even though yeah like obviously periods like you know they're not great whatever but like it is nice to have those kind of like rise rises and falls again like it is nice to feel normal even though it's kind of a bit of a pain in the ass at the same time it is quite nice it should be, and, and and that's and that's that's love. Like who you are is is dependent on your neurotransmitters, is dependent on your hormones. That's your personality. If you put in a blanket of hormones of the pill, you're going to be screwing up your personality long term. You're going to be screwing up who you are at your core as a woman, as a person. So, and that's another like I guess this is a more abstract, esoteric kind of concept, but you can't experience happiness without knowing what sadness is. Simple as that. You can't experience pleasure without knowing what pain is as the bolt, as the polar opposite. You can't experience the sweet without the bitter. You can't experience all of the highs of life if you can't go through the lows. So part of being a woman and going through a shit period or going through like a period that is a little bit less happy, I would argue that that's setting you up to have a lot of elation and happiness in the other, t- the other times of the year when you're not having your menstrual cycle. Now, you can balance that out a little bit better, I would argue, for a lot of people. Um, 
everybody is different, but it's just part of life. You're going to have depressive periods. Guys are as well. Like we, we don't go through our periods, our menstrual cycle, but we do go through periods where we're a bit sadder. We go through, and that you know that allows us to feel extreme happiness. That's just a human thing that we're trying to. We're, we're saying that's a problem. We are saying that girls having a period, having pain in their period, and being moody and cranky. We're saying that's a problem, but it's fucking not. That's just human nature. That's just survival. That's just evolution. Like that's what the bodies are meant to go through. Definitely. And it's it's society. It's society that's fucked up. It's human. It's um what we've done as an industrialized nation that's fucked up. Where we're expecting women and girls to be able to go through life twenty four seven and to be able to perform at a high level year round, irrespective of a period. It's that pressure to be able to perform despite having a period. Where if you look at it and you realize, you know what, a period and feeling like shit in that time and moody and cranky and more more introverted or whatever it may be, that's actually normal and should be respected in the workplace. It should be respected in life. It should be respected in everything else. Yeah. But, you know, the fact is, you know, we live in a man's world, as sad as it is. I have heard in the past that when girls have had a male coach who don't have that understanding, they will kind of just keep bashing them down like you've just got to keep going you've just got to keep going without actually having that kind of awareness of how much that period can affect you yes you can mm-hmm. control it but mm-hmm. i think yeah definitely having that awareness of it is so important and i'm so glad you said about like people you know just people you've got to understand that it happens <laughs> sort of thing like i know that my training yeah. my training will completely i will feel quite a big crash if I push it, if I get overreached, like, I, it's normally the time for me. As soon as, like, my period's due and I start to get overreached, even with me and my coach personally, like, we must slightly pull things back. Or it's kind of like it's the natural time for me to deload and it's kind of the time to recover and just get better. But I think mm-hmm. if people don't track that and if people don't have that awareness, then they're not really oh. doing themselves any benefit and might be pushing themselves deeper with into a bit of a tricky situation potentially that's the thing i mean that exactly right people aren't aware of it people aren't talking about it people are um, demonizing peers they're demonizing women and they're never going to see women as like this is a whole culture society thing. they're not, not going to see women as equals in that respect because it's very male dominated still which i hope does change i hope as more guys start to realize of and they start to educate themselves on the female system and the female the female body in general and they stop living in this man's world the whole you know james brown song um like it, it is a man's world but it's mm. got to change you know because it would be nothing without a woman or a girl um there you, there go. you go and Love we've it. got to understand that and, and respect that with program design. We've got to respect that with training. We've got to respect that with nutrition. And things can be done so much better and so much more healthier. And actually, it, it can be done better without compromising the results. Like that's what I quantify saying it's better. Actually, it's, you, can, you still can compete. You still can get lean. You still can do all these things. But you can do it without the side effects. You can do it without the ramifications. You can do it without compromising your health and having to go through all this shitness. But it starts with understanding. It starts with awareness. Exactly right. You know, that's why, like, I think I, I get really passionate about talking about this sort of stuff because I think it's just we can do, we can just change this industry so much more and make it a, a better industry for people. It starts with the guys realizing, fuck, you know what? It goes going through a period. It's a shit time. We've got to manage that, not eradicate it, but we've just got to program around that and take it into consideration that a girl goes through a period each month. Yeah, you, a lot of coaches are still male as well, which I guess is another 
well, it's not a good or bad thing, but if the guys aren't educated, then it could be potentially. I don't know. The, the, a guy is never like I, – I say it to myself, you know, I'm never going to have the perspective that a female coach could in terms of knowing what a period feels like. I can try to empathize with it as much as I can, but I never will be able to because I'm not a girl. Mm. Doesn't mean doesn't mean a female coach is immediately going to be better than I am because she might not have the education per se. Yeah. But that's why I'm, that's why I'm always striving to be better educated on the female system and try to empathize more with my female clients, understand what's happening on that level as if I'm living in their shoes to know what it's going through, so I can know how to program better. But not many guys, like males, are able or are trying, willing to do that. They just say work fucking harder, take clenbuterol, take Novavax, and get lean. Um, but if the onus is on the coach to say, you know what, I respect my athlete and they're coming to me with these issues, I've got to try to fix it more. And if the onus is on the on the female coach. So I hope, I hope we see a lot more female coaches coming out there who are actually good female coaches, not Instagram models selling 10 fucking dollar ebooks about booty building, but actually educated women who care about functional medicine and functional health and longevity and also are, you know, hardcore beasts in the gym who know how to put in good work ethic and and are very admirable in their achievements i do see a few popping up on social media i do see a, um, a glimmer of that happening and, and it excites me to know that you know females are stepping up in that industry from not just from an athlete perspective but from an educator perspective from a coaching perspective because we need more female role models in this industry for, for girls just like you you know to be to be able to empathize with them and say okay here's what we're going to do with your training definitely I just everything's definitely, but yeah, I've got there's so many ebooks, isn't there? The more I see, I'm just like there's so <laughs> too many, many, too many, many ebooks. I, if there's an ebook about cup sizes, then I might be down for it. But <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, this is why I wanted you on because I had people coming. I, I always ask if any listener, which I love, if they message me and uh, DM me, I'm like, what do you want to hear about? And I've had a few people talk about or oh, want training, and I'm like, I ain't an online coach, like. <laughs> I, I, I know mm. a bit because I absorb whatever Joe's talks about when he's on Skype or whatever, but like it's knowing like who to go to. And I think that is maybe something that people struggle to do, but hopefully this podcast is going to help just push people in those right directions. And like, and, this, oh, this, and this is so. another thing that drives me nuts is when people ask the athlete what they did instead of asking their coach what they did. Like the athlete is not going yeah. to know yeah. half the questions. Yes. Yeah. Like, well, the answer yeah. to your questions, that coach could potentially know that answer, if that makes sense. But people always go to the athlete, and then that athlete that might not yeah. know a lot then becomes this online coach because they've got that prestige, but they haven't actually got the education. Like, whenever I've had, a, I've, whenever I've kind of been interested, I've always gone to directly to the coach because they're going to know. Like, the athlete, yeah, they'll understand what's going to exactly work for right. them, but it might not work for you. Like, do you see what I mean? Yeah, like, one thing I used to say a lot. Um, by and large, is that you can be a great athlete or you can be a great coach. Generally speaking, you're not going to be both. And it's a bitter pill for some people to swallow because they, because they realize, fuck, I'm a good athlete, means I'm probably not going to be a good coach. And that's fine. Like some people are meant to be great coaches. I know for myself, the, with the way that my mind's set up, I'm not made to be a good athlete. I was a few years ago. Like I was meant to be mentally, like I could just have tunnel vision and just say fuck off to the world and fuck off helping people. I was very selfish in that regard and very self-interested, very narcissistic even. That is an athletic mindset, unfortunately. Like not to disparage athletes whatsoever, but it's what you've yeah. got to do to succeed at an exceptional level. It's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Couple that with genetics and work ethic, you're going to succeed. But to, for a coach, 
have to take a very, very different approach. You have to be more empathetic. You have to be more open-minded. You have to be more thoughtful. You got to be more, um, I guess, you got to think about things more, be more analytical. Mm. There's no room. For, there's no room for analysis as an athlete. As an athlete, you've got to follow orders and you've got to work fucking hard. Simple as that. You got yeah. to be pointed in the right direction and throw yourself into it. A coach is there to guide you. That's why you need both. And that's why you can't be both. It's like being your own lawyer. It's like being your own doctor. You can't do those things to yourself, okay? Because, I mean, you, you physically can, but you're going to fuck yourself up because it can be done so much better and you are shortchanging yourself by not getting a coach if you want to be the athlete. Or if, you're, mm. if you are the coach trying to be the athlete at the same time, you're going to minimize, you're going to compromise your ability to be a good coach. That's why, like, I'm very happy to not train as much anymore because I'd rather focus on my coaching and helping my helping my business, helping my athletes, helping those around me, doing stuff like this. Like, if I was an athlete right now, I couldn't do this podcast because it's food time or I've got to go to the gym or I've got to do my cardio or whatever it is. There's no room for that. But I would rather be the educator, be the coach, be whatever it is that helper in the industry um, at the expense of being an athlete. That's fine. But people got to come to realization with that and they've got to know how to seek out the right people. Don't seek out the athlete. The athlete may point you in the right direction and say, hey, I'll learn this from my coach, then go seek out the coach. The athlete, is, the athlete is a good display of the coach's knowledge, taking the genetics out of it, of course, but look yeah. to the coach, look to where they learned from. I think that's so true, yes. I keep saying differently. I'm going to have to cut so much differently out of this, but it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true, and I think that's a big one that hopefully people are going to take away with. Right, I think we should wrap up here. I think we've covered more than last time, to be honest, but I still feel like we need to cover more. But, yeah, hope you guys have found this podcast interesting. If you have any questions for myself or Eugene, well, obviously go to Eugene because I don't know, obviously, half as much or even 10%, maybe 15 after this episode, but we'll see. But, um, yeah, do let me know if you want us to cover different topics next time and please make sure that you have subscribed and if you like the podcast then please leave a review as well i always love reading them and it's obviously helps push this podcast out more so eugene thank you so much for coming on again i've checked my pleasure i have checked and i promise you this is recorded and it's on my phone <laughs> this is just flawless yes. protection this is gonna awesome. work but um yeah thank awesome. you so much fantastic and thank you guys